93% of your life is spent indoors, but so many of our favorite moments are outdoors. The fresh air, the feeling of peace. Since warmer weather is almost here, let's make the most of it with Outer, the new outdoor furniture company with purposely designed furniture to get you outdoors more. Outer makes the world's most beautiful, comfortable, innovative, and high-quality outdoor furniture, all from sustainable materials. I love the new outdoor dining table and chairs I just bought. It looks great in my backyard, and it's the perfect setup for hosting a dinner party. Go to liveouter.com slash thefounderhour to see all the incredible products they have to offer. For a limited time, get 10% off and free shipping. That's liveouter.com slash thefounderhour. Terms and conditions apply. Hey everyone, before we get into the episode, just a quick reminder, if you enjoy what you hear, please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That way you get notified when new episodes drop. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, at The Founder Hour. Let's get into it. Well, Nick, thank you for being with us here on the show. Nick is the founder of Thrive Market, which we'll dive into um, as we go along in this conversation. So Nick, thank you for being here. I know it's a Sunday morning. Uh, bright and early, uh, no better time to talk about business and entrepreneurship. So um, we're excited to be here with you. Thanks for having me. So we like to start it off super early, back to when you were essentially born. Uh, so talk to us a little bit about where you were born and what young Nick was like. Yeah, so I, I grew up, uh, you know, middle class in the Midwest. Um, uh, born and raised in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Had uh, you know the the very good fortune to have two parents that were uh, really involved, both of them, and a mom especially who had a really clear vision for you know what she wanted uh, for her kids in terms of opportunities. Uh, she grew up in a large uh, Mexican American family, uh, very working class. Uh, no one in her family had gone to college. Uh, had a lot of uh, health issues with different family members, which you know at the time they didn't understand, but she ultimately came to to learn we're, we're driven by lifestyle. So she was uh, absolutely maniacal about health in our home, um, which is a great gift that she gave to, our, our, to us as kids. I had a, a brother or a brother and a sister, uh, both younger than I am. So I'm the, the first of three. And, uh, and then the other big thing she was focused on was education. So those were kind of like the two pillars growing up was, uh, you know, a lot of books in the house, not a lot of TV, uh, a lot of, uh, fresh food, healthy food as much as she could get it uh and uh, not a lot of packaged food um mm. she was absolutely anti-sugar at a time before that was really a thing mm-hmm. and then an era where particularly on a budget and particularly you know in minneapolis there weren't a ton of options right. you know there wasn't a whole foods down the down the street so you know as a kid i i loved to read um i uh, excelled in school uh, i definitely was not I think a lot of people have an image of entrepreneurs being like the rebellious, creative right. type. I wouldn't have described myself that way. I don't think anyone else would have either. I was, uh, I was a straight A student and very studious, and uh, you know, uh, but 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 really happy. I had a great, um, incredible childhood, um, and it's uh, something I've appreciated even more now as a parent. I've got three young kids myself now. And uh, just realizing how how amazing it was growing up there. The, you know, the I 90s. feel like most kids would rebel being in a situation where their parents were sort of like saying, like, you need to eat this and not that, or you need to study harder, or, you know, like that kind of a little bit of this, that strictness or just like telling, um, almost like telling you what how to live or what to do. But it sounds like you were more like open to that and more appreciative and, you know, like okay with it, I guess. Like, why is that? Was it just 
because think, yeah yeah it's a great point and and i've thought about it too uh and i think like nick of 2024 or even 2014 might have rebelled a lot more mm-hmm. so i was i definitely as a kid was not a uh yeah i just wasn't a rebellious kid so i think there's a uh, a kind of nature portion of that. But to be honest, I give a lot of credit to my mom. Like she was able to do those things in a way that wasn't pushy, that wasn't strict, that wasn't telling us what not to do, but rather telling us, giving us options of what to do. Mm. Um, again, like we didn't watch any TV, but there wasn't like rules around the TV. Right. We just like didn't have cable TV. Like we didn't have, there's no remote control. So mm. like if you were watching TV, you had to change the channels. Right. You didn't know any other alternative. I didn't know any other alternative. Yeah. So, and like we, there were always new books in the house. There was always, uh, you know, if she saw that I was interested in, like I had a thing for, for cats for a while. Mm. Like literally I can, you know, like bobcats were my favorite, favorite animal. And I went down that rabbit hole for, you know, months. Um, was there like an education National Geographic? Like yeah. That kind of was stuff. there like an education component in terms of like let's say uh, you know eating healthy foods where she would like learn a lot about why and and kind of explain that versus saying like well you know some people just see it on the news or see it somewhere and be like well I guess this is healthy so we should eat this way. I think she was yeah she was definitely again she like she wouldn't have used this language but she was a first principles thinker yeah you know <laughs> and so at a time when uh you know you didn't have the internet at your fingertips you couldn't just like do research uh instantly she was she was doing the hard work to learn about you know what 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 the science said what the facts right. were um so she was a big reader herself you know her bookshelf was like a lot of books on parenting a lot of books on education a lot of books on health and diet uh, she was always doing interesting kind of stuff with supplements. Um, and she was really into fresh organic food. Um, and to the extent that we were buying packaged foods, it was like simple, minimally processed uh, products. Um, and of course, be- because we didn't have the financial resources, she was doing it all on a budget. So I also saw how hard she had to work right. to, to make that happen. Uh, but to your, to your question about like, did she give us reasons? Um, I think she did to the extent that she understood them and they were kind of like age appropriate for us. She also, um, I think the most important thing that she instilled was, uh, you know, we think for ourselves and our family. Like the fact that the neighbors uh, eat this way or they right. drink soda at dinner, that doesn't mean that we have to. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there was, she, she used that kind of, uh, um, she, or she expressed that, that, that view on a lot of things. And that was really profound. And I think that made us as kids and ultimately as adults more independent thinkers. As yeah, well. I, th- I think when it comes to, you know, food, nutrition, I mean, frankly, anything. But, you know, I feel like, Pat, you and I, we grew up in time here in the U.S. and L.A. where, like, you know, it was soda and chips and, you know, vending machines. And, like, that's kind of all you knew. You You knew they weren't good for you, but that was what was there, right? Totally. There was no, you know vegetables at school like a farmer you know farmer market style where you could just go grab fruits and veggies at you know snack or whatever the the case may be and so automatically you create these habits around that and because these foods contain you know the sugars and all the addicting you know ingredients that your body just wants even though it's not good for you you just kind of grow and you still do those same things it's it's normalized yeah right so i think this is again back to like my mom being a first principles thinker that was the greatest gift she could have given to us because you know we are social creatures we are mimetic creatures like we all of us uh you know ape and learn from uh those around us and often without even realizing right like why do i eat this way i eat this way because like everyone around me eats this way and if it feels normal then i don't even really think about whether it's healthy or unhealthy so yeah, that was something that in our house was really different, and I'm you know very grateful for that. Right. 
What, what what brought your family to Minneapolis? Were they just there for generations or? That's a very interesting story, actually. And that obviously precedes me. My parents moved to Minneapolis uh, right before they got married. They actually got married. Uh, they bought the house that we grew up in our entire, you know, for, for 20 years uh, uh, and got married in the backyard. Um, so that my mom was like, quite, she, like she described herself as old when she got married. Uh, she was, I think, 31. <laughs> Um, my dad was, uh, in his late twenties. So there was a number of things that were unusual about their marriage. One was my mom was older than my dad. Yep. Um, you know, at that time and certainly amongst like her, uh, her friends and family, she was very unusual in both like waiting to get married and then also having a career. So my mom was a financial planner. Um, she was the first in her family to do any college. She didn't actually graduate from college, but she went to a junior college, which was like a huge deal for them. Um, and, uh, and actually, as growing up, she was still taking college classes to go back and get her degree. Yep. Like that, she was that she was that committed to it. But, um, but yeah, they moved to Minneapolis actually as a compromise uh, because my dad was uh, grew up in Iowa. He's a farm boy, um, and she grew up in Denver. She wanted to be in a big city. He didn't want to leave the Midwest. Um, and it was one of many compromises they made uh, to make their their partnership, their marriage work. Um, you know, they were also, my dad is, uh, is, is white. His family was, uh, you know, in a very like Caucasian background was like Scandinavian, uh, you know, his, 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 his grandma, his mother's side is Norwegian. Dad's side is like French and English. Um, so my mom was like a foreign species mm-hmm. to, to their family. Um, and so she didn't want to be, in, she, she didn't want to go to Iowa, but she's like, all right, Minnesota is a good compromise. Yeah. Um, and you know, and they, and they built a life there. Like they didn't have any family there. Uh, so we had family, a lot of family in Iowa. Right. We went out to Denver. We road tripped to Denver every year to visit my, my mom's family. And that was another cool experience that we got as kids was, you know, our parents coming from such different backgrounds, both like kind of the, the culture and where ge- geographically, you know, farm versus city. Um, you know, we got to see those differences. And like, I think, you know, again, to your point, like what you kind of take for granted if you only know one reality. Right. But seeing those two realities too was really cool. Like yeah. we saw like the, the family dynamic with my my mom had a huge family, super close, really loud, boisterous, right. emotional, fun. Uh, not so much so on my dad's side of the family, but but a, but also a really close family yeah. and also a really big family. Um, and so we got great things from both sides. And on my mom's side, you know, there was uh, some of the the real um, I would say dysfunction of uh, lack of education and um, and especially around health. Right. So that 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 was a, a huge influence for my mom, just seeing families or family members with diabetes um, and dealing with, uh, you know, all of these kind of uh, diseases of, of, of lifestyle. You mentioned um, you did really well in school. Were there like certain subjects that you were like better in than others or you were just kind of across the board? You were you just were a good student. I was a good student. I, yeah. I like I was I would say um, you know, back to the point of not being rebellious. I was super conscientious. Um, and so. Uh, you know, my mom was also, she's, she's like a very communicative parent. So you're like always talking about feelings. We were talking about our day, reflecting on things that happened. Um, so I'd say, you know, I definitely gravitated towards more of the like writing and reading. Um, but I loved science. I loved math. Um, and yeah, just had a real kind of curiosity and love for learning, uh, in school. And then also was very conscientious and also very competitive. So like the, you know, if you gave me a, uh, a test, like I'd get excited about a test. Like if it's about grades, I wanted to get the right. best grade. 
So there was that, that side. And, you know, that extended outside of school too. Like I was also very into sports. Um, uh, I was an athletic kid, but I would say my, my drive was stronger than my innate athleticism. Mm -hmm. Um, so that was, uh, uh, that was a, an interesting experience of like having to, to confront one's own physical limitations and one's own like talent level, but also do the best that you can with what you got. Um, you, you know, it's refreshing to hear that you were a good student because a lot of the people that we do interview, uh, and I don't know if they're telling the truth or not, but it's always that they were the rebellious or we were a BC student and that's what led us to become entrepreneurs or whatever. And I just, I don't know where that falls on the spectrum of truth and, you know, they made up a story just so it's something to add on to their narrative. Um, but, you know, now that you are an entrepreneur, you know, has there been a connection to you being a good student, right? Like where you are conscientious, you are, you know, doing your homework, you are doing your research, you're making sure, you know, all your I's are dotted, T's are crossed type person, or, or are you completely different than that quote unquote good student Nick in this day and age? I would say a couple of things. Um, first, the things that I learned as a kid, because I was reading so much, because I was so conscientious, um, there's a, a foundation of skills that I got. Right. Um, you know, learning is, it compounds, right? It's cumulative. And I think getting a lot of that at a young age was really powerful for me and just giving me frameworks, giving me reference points, giving me the ability to continue to be a, a lifelong learner. Um, you know, as well, because I was reading so much, like, had a big vocabulary. I was a great communicator. I became a good speaker. I was uh, a top top ranked debater in the country at one point when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. So those those uh, I think are are skills that definitely have translated into business directly. Um, in an even more direct way, the um, you know the fact that I was successful academically was actually the gateway to my first business, which was SAT and ACT prep. So you know that business was all about helping uh, basically make college more accessible. Right. So you know again, I grew up. Their mom side of the family, like no one had gone gone to college. College was super important for her, but you know she they weren't thinking about Harvard, right. which is where I went to undergrad. They were thinking about just like go to college. Yeah, and I happened to do really well in the SAT, and partially because of all you know I've been this like studious kid. I done all this stuff. I did well in the SAT, and uh, and that that helped me get into a place like Harvard. But I also realized that I got there you know a, a little bit out of luck of doing well in this test because I wasn't kind of masterminding right. the process of how to get into the best college possible. Um, and so, you know, that, that was the genesis of Ivy Insiders, which was basically first I was teaching test prep courses in my hometown. Then I started hiring other undergrads at Harvard and then eventually across a bunch of different colleges. At one point we had, I think six or 700 branches uh, wow. during the summer, which we would then use to seed online test prep in the school year. But the whole model was, you know, all right, let's, let's like democratize, this 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 game mm -hmm. of getting into college because at that time if you were wealthy if you went to a private school if your parents really were on top of it you know you could game the college admissions process if you were like the ninety whatever percent of us that didn't have that it was a bit of a crapshoot and there right. were people like me that did well there was also people that were as smart as me in my my high school class that didn't do as well in the SAT mm -hmm. and then they had some of those doors closed so yeah that was actually directly then the reason that I became an entrepreneur. I, I call myself an accidental entrepreneur yeah. in that, you know, it, it was like, I stumbled into that opportunity. Um, what path and, were you on at the time? Like, in, in, what were you I, studying? I thought, honestly, I, again, I was a, I was a, I was big into debate in high okay. school. Um, I was very academic and I thought I wanted to be either going to academia. Maybe I thought yeah. I maybe wanted to go to law school. Um, 
And, uh, and, and honestly, like this is, this is maybe one place where my mom's I've, I've diverged from how my mom thought about it. Like for her, it was like, you know, she had these images of, of what success meant that were unattainable for her, or her family. What, um, what were those images? You know, they were going to call a four year college, right. Getting a degree, yeah. which was itself was like a huge accomplishment. And then they were the the professions, you know, if you like having a really good job, yeah, whether law, it was a doctor medicine. or a lawyer, like those would be huge accomplishments. So that was sort of my worldview. And then as I stumbled into entrepreneurship, I discovered a couple of things. One is, you know, it was just so much more fun and exhilarating and exciting and, and creative. Yeah. Right. So like I had spent most of my childhood, like particularly in, in the academic context, kind of jumping through hoops, like doing really well, but checking boxes in these like very tightly controlled systems where you knew the rules, the game was very clear, but it was also kind of simple and it was a little bit boring. And now I get into this world where it's like, there are no rules, right? And you have, things are exponential. They right. build, they take twists and turns. Um, and to be honest, back to your question about like, did the, the academic training help or you know, hurt coming into being an entrepreneur? I think this, some of the skills helped, but the mentality had to change completely. Yeah. So like I described kind of my first business was like unlearning right. everything I had gotten good at, you know, before that, right. which was like, you know, I was rewarded as a kid for being a perfectionist. Right. Like you cannot be a perfectionist in business or you just simply will not get things done. Right. Right. I was, I was rewarded for like jumping to the hoop for following directions. You aren't rewarded for that in business. Yep. So yeah, I, I do feel like while some of the skills translated, the mindset was like almost it was almost the opposite. Right. Well, so you talk about like, you know, this, the debate speech and I think naturally folks that are good at that think that law school is the next path because that's what you're told is the next path. What dissuaded you from going to law school? I mean, it was it, 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 during college, I basically pursued like a parallel path. Mm-hmm. So I had like I was academically yeah. still really driven and still doing all my stuff in school. Um, I was studying uh economics, uh, and, uh, and social theory and doing things that would have prepared me to go to, go to law school. Um, I spent a summer working at McKinsey, which is a, con- a consulting firm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sort of the, the thing to do at that time, if you were an, at an, uh, an undergrad, uh, from an Ivy league college. Um, and so I was very much still on that track, but then during the summers I was running this test prep business that was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And so my junior year, I kind of sat at a crossroads where, it was like, all right, I either can do, I was doing a very challenging major called social studies, which doesn't sound challenging because it sounds yeah. like a sixth grade class, yeah. but it was actually a, 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 an honors only major at Harvard uh, that was very interdisciplinary, complex. Uh, and I ended up dropping down to just regular economics. Then I activated my advanced standing to graduate a semester early um, and basically like made a decision um, largely after there was a summer after my junior year where I had worked at McKinsey. So I like, got this consulting experience, kind of like checking the boxes, going the, the traditional path. And I was running my business yeah. at the night and weekends kind of time times. And the contrast just couldn't have been more stark. And it was so clear to me that the latter is what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I got back, I dropped down to economics. I activated my advanced standings to graduate a, 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 a semester early. And basically, uh, you know, squatting in the dorms, uh, still living in the dorms, despite the fact that I wasn't technically enrolled uh, for six months and just like went all in on the business. And so 
Um, so yeah, it wasn't easy. Like for me, I was very fortunate to start that first business in college where I kind of had a multi-year process right. to test it out. And to be honest, like I admire people that just like pull the ripcord, mm-hmm. you know, on a whim. For me, it was like very much like, you know, three years of like identity right. crisis mm-hmm. and kind of like shifting, right. culminating with that experience of like, I actually got to see during my McKinsey internship, like all the great things about that, which was like brilliant people, et cetera, et cetera. But also just like, can I imagine myself for the next X years, like sitting and working on someone else's business yeah. and you know, giving them advice when I can be building my own? Yeah. You mentioned kind of falling into this in a way, but um, growing up, was there anyone in your family or kind of community or some like maybe parents or friends or whatever that had started businesses? Or if not, like were there certain business people, entrepreneurs that you looked up to um, where you're like, okay, that's cool. Like they're kind of started something out of nothing. And, you know, to be honest, like, I don't think the word entrepreneurship or the like job entrepreneur or like career path entrepreneur was even in my realm of possibilities. Um, I mean, my dad, uh, worked for a bank. He had a successful career. He was, he's, you know, really, really sharp guy, but, but his, you know, his, and any, any, ascended into management. So I saw that as like, that's what a business person does. Mm -hmm. You know, they like wear a tie, they carry a briefcase. He's, you know, gone before I wake up in the morning, you know, comes home at six o'clock and then does it again the next day. Um, And so I, no, I had no role models that way. I wasn't like reading the business press. I was not into business. I wasn't investing. Like people tell all these stories. Like I, when I look back, there were things I did that were entrepreneurial. Like I had a, a lawn mowing business and you know went crazy with it where i was like you know mowing like 15 lawns and like going around and i would uh i would like gamify it where some of my lawns were contiguous and i'd like you know time myself and like do all this stuff and um and so i i i look back on that now and say oh yeah like i can see like i really had fun like building systems and building a business but i wouldn't have called that a business at the time Mm -hmm. i mean truth be told i look back at our high school days and i don't think i knew the word entrepreneur until college where everybody was, you know, we went to USC, everybody was talking about entrepreneurship. And that was like, you're like, oh, this is a thing. Like, I, I, I didn't realize that a business owner is essentially an entrepreneur, right? I mean, they almost, I know the word's been around, but the branding of entrepreneur got a lot I think stronger. O- I, t- I totally agree with that. I think over the last decade, you've had this uh, real like romantiz- yes. romantization of entrepreneurship um, and celebration of entrepreneurship, right. which is really cool. Yeah, it's really cool because it is a it is a creative and very fulfilling and can align to your personal totally values in a way that a lot of career paths can't. But yeah, growing up, that doesn't that was not not the no. case. Like we were talking about this a couple nights ago with just just Pat and I, and about like starting a new business versus you know acquiring one and like you know basically like an existing one and just growing that. And you know, to me, that's also entrepreneurship. Just because, I mean, on this podcast, we interview founders of the companies and maybe not the person that bought the company and then, you know, started it and now they're a new founder or whatever, however that works. But that entrepreneurship is is, is less of almost of a, like a noun, but more of a verb, right? In my opinion, I mean, you, you are, you own and operate and try to grow that business. But there's also the, I think, downside to it of the romanticism, which is that there's now this added pressure like, oh, he's an entrepreneur, she's an entrepreneur, like that must mean that they're aiming to make those multi-millions, multi-billions of dollars because that's what me- the media kind of world has taught us. Whereas like 
that's not how we grew up. That's not how the business owners that I knew grew up. Yeah, you're just, what, right. Yeah. Once once the image starts to be glorified, right. they also draw a box around it and say, this is what an entrepreneur is. This is what it has to Correct. look like when, in fact, it can look very differently. Yeah. I also I agree with you that like the part of speech is important. Like I think about the the adjective, I guess, of entrepreneurial. Yes. And you can be entrepreneurial mm-hmm. with and a not lot an of entrepreneur, things, right? Without yeah. being an entrepreneur. Yeah. So, um, like, I'm sure you have several people at your company that you, I mean, I, I'm not going to assume, but like I am, that are entrepreneurial, but also entrepreneurial. are. Encouraged yeah. to be entrepreneurial because that's what, as an entrepreneur, helps your you know company. <laughs> at the end so, of it. I mean, nail on the head. This is this is actually our culture yeah. uh, at Thrive, um, and I think also the culture of many successful businesses that can scale and remain innovative and flexible and effective is around entrepreneurship, right? Like creating an ownership mentality and helping people, despite the fact that they're in they're part of an increasingly large business feel like they have control, like they have the right to be creative, like they can move quickly, like they can make mistakes. I mean, all of those qualities or attributes of entrepreneurship, um, particularly, I think, in a in an economy that's moving as fast and is as, as dynamic as ours now is, like it's a huge advantage. Yeah. But I think if I think Amazon, you know, they say it's it's always day one. Um, and to be able to preserve that kind of mentality at the scale that they're at, I mean it's the reason they're the most valuable company in history. Right. What are what are those particular you kind of touched on it, but what are those particular sort of skills or attributes that you you not only look for, but sort of try to maybe like, I guess, work off of, you know, when they are at the company like that creates that ownership mentality that creates that entrepreneurialism? Is it something that just, they, you know, folks come in with or is it something that you feel like could also be trained in a way? Um. So I think I think about like skill and then mindset, and and the skills uh, are can be like technical skills of your job. They can be uh, you know things like communication uh, or tools that you've mastered uh, that just make you better at anything that you do. Um, even what I was describing before of like my academic work and the way that, like I learned a lot of skills. Yeah. Um, in terms of being a communicator and being a reader and being able to like bone up on a subject quickly and and speak about eloquently, knowing to write, ask the right questions, like all of those, I think of as as skills. Um, and we hire for those very rigorously at Thrive. Like having a person that has the right skills is is essential. Um, one of the really powerful things today is that as a remote company, we don't have to just look for the best person in Los Angeles with those skills. We can literally go all over the country and in some roles all over the world to find the the right skills. Um, but I think what you're getting at is this other thing about my mindset, uh, which is as critical and I think less uh, often hired for yep. and less effectively hired for, even when it's supposedly in the mix. Um, and I think there's a side of that that's definitely, you know, nature. Uh, so you need to find people that are um, uh, uh, comfortable with like risk, with ambiguity, uh, with uh, with and like flexible enough to move quickly. Like a chip on their shoulder. I think a chip on the shoulder can be part of it, but I also think it's like a, a holding of reality a little more loosely. Mm-hmm. So this is where I had to do a lot of unlearning, right? Like if you're a perfectionist. If every time you make a mistake, it just like hurts you at your core. Right. If every time you're yeah. criticized, you spend you, you <laughs> ruminate over it, uh, you are going to have a lot of trouble moving in a fast paced environment where we're doing something really hard and we're just like by, almost by definition going to make a lot of mistakes. So 
I think there's a there's a nature part of that. Like some people yeah. just are like a little bit more resilient, a little bit more flexible, a little bit more open, a little bit more adventurous. Those things are really good qualities for an entrepreneur and in an entrepreneurial company. But then I do believe that they can be cultivated, right? Mm-hmm. And again, like if you would have looked at me at age 17 or 18, I didn't have a lot of those qualities, at least not outwardly. Yeah. I think they were maybe latent as abilities within me. But it was as I started to, to you know, you kind of actually forced to learn them in the first business yeah. that they came out. I feel like a big piece also, I don't know if you would agree, um, is this fear of when you're an entrepreneur, it's, it could be the fear of failure, but when you're working somewhere and you're sort of wanting to be entrepreneurial or expected to be entrepreneurial, but it's the fear that gets in the way, the fear of losing your job if you take a risk, you know, the fear of being, you know, like highly criticized for something. Um, sometimes when you're in a company and the, the sort of company politics could create that fear. And I think that once people let go of that fear, um, then they're more like able to be that way and bring themselves to be like more, more like risk taking, I guess, because that's how those big breakthroughs happen, whether it's in, t- in a company or e- externally. Um, I don't know if that's something that that, I mean, that resonates fully. I think yeah. one, one thing a lot of people get wrong is believing like even the language of getting over the fear, uh, you know, I've, I've heard it said, I don't know who the quote's from, but like courage is not the absence of fear, but it's having the fear and doing it anyway. Mm. And I do think over time, if you do something you're afraid of enough, if you fly, you, right. it's like a muscle, right? The more you work, the more you develop it. You right. do actually have an attenuation of the fear and then you do feel less fear. But initially, so many people are waiting to like, right. oh, I got to like not feel the fear. It's like, right. no, you're never, you're going to feel the fear, yeah. right. right? It's like jumping into the cold pool. Right. Like it's going to be cold. And if you're not, there's probably something wrong. Like you should yeah, be exactly, feeling a exactly. And scared. so it's yeah. like the, like my attitude is a little bit of like, do it anyway. Yeah. Right. And like, what are, what are mental models that you can use to convince yourself right. to act in spite of the fear? Um, and, you know, in a personal, what personal mental model I use is like, which I think is very apt in business is, is a little bit like, uh, it's like I call it the game, but just like reminding yourself that this isn't, this is a, it's a game, yeah. right? Like it, it's not life or death, right? Our nervous systems, our brains evolved in a world where making a mistake could be fatal, right? Being rejected by the tribe could mean death. Um, uh, we now live in a world where, uh, you know, there's like no real fatal risks in your day to day, particularly in business. So getting yourself to a place to say like, all right, my, my, uh, you know, limbic system is telling me I'm in danger, but I know I'm not. Right. And, uh, and in fact, I'm like playing a game where I have unlimited lives. And, you right. know, sometimes the thing, the time where I like think I just died turns out to open the door to something that's even better. Uh, you know, that for me is very powerful for the company. The big thing that we've focused on is, is really just our, our values and our, and our principles, which are the ways that we translate those, those values into action and I think when people have those in mind and when they're talked about in a company, they can become a bulwark that, that helps people get over the fear. So like one of our values is authenticity. And that's that part of that is like just being your authentic self. But a lot of it is, is around intellectual honesty. So being open with constructive feedback, both giving it and receiving it, right? So can we have tough conversations? Do we engage on things that do feel uncomfortable? And, and as I was saying earlier, I think, you know, you can't avoid the fact that it's going to be uncomfortable to criticize someone. It's going to be uncomfortable when you're criticized, but you do that enough, all of a sudden it does start to feel more comfortable. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like to, to your point, I think it, yeah, definitely starts from the culture and from the leadership. And 
encouraging that and, and making it making the culture that versus you know like everyone sort of like a everyone's to themselves and everyone it's like this thing that it's like this is how we operate and i think if you don't have that then that's probably why certain companies do really well and some some don't totally. and this yeah. is where you can actually i think um use to great effect the fact that we all are mimetic right we all sort of absorb the culture around us and that can be very toxic if you're in a negative culture but it be it can be incredibly positive and energizing and self-reinforcing mm -hmm. if you create those those right conditions that right culture um and we've we've absolutely seen that at thrive i think you know for us like the culture begins with our mission mm -hmm. we're trying to make healthy living easy affordable accessible to anybody and that that like filter for everything we do creates like meaning and motivation and the willing to put willingness to push through 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 challenges um but it also actually is in in a way its own challenge that like if you're a quote unquote mission driven business it's it's very easy to, for that to seem kind of woo woo right right for sure and the the reality is like the mission we're trying to do it is like bold and 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 positive and all of that but it's also really hard and so to like we have to be both like mission driven meaning leading with our heart but also like really savvy and resilient and like hard driving to make that happen and so that's been an interesting tension in our business of being like all right we are this like warm loving like create good in the world business mm -hmm. and we're also going to work really hard and be self-critical right. and like be tenacious at the same time customers are rushing to your store do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real pos you need shopify for retail shopify pos is your command center for your retail store from accepting payments to managing inventory shopify has everything you need to sell in person Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash founder hour. Once again, go to shopify.com slash founder hour to take your retail business to the next level today. We've talked a lot about Thrive, but before we dive a little deeper into how it began and what you guys are up to now, I'm curious, whatever happened with the testing business? I mean, it, it clearly grew a lot. What was kind of the the destination for that? We had, So we had a lot of success. I think the, uh, uh, honestly, the, the, the challenge I had as an entrepreneur, and I would say this was my immaturity, um, I didn't have an end destination in mind. So like in that business, I stumbled into it. It was getting bigger and bigger. And, uh, and we ended up getting an offer to get acquired. Uh, this is in 2011, I think. Um, and it was like, you know, more money than I had ever seen, more money than anyone in my family had ever seen. And, and, and honestly, I sold because it was, that, it was that financial outcome. And it was just you in charge? Like you were the sole founder? Or? Yeah, we didn't have to raise any money. It was a services business. I had the yeah. benefit of being able to build it in college where right. I didn't need to take a, take a salary or anything yeah. like that. So it was, a very, uh, for, it was very fortuitous. It also gave me a, a um, I think, unreasonable expectation about how easy it was to, right. to, to sell a business because it just sort of like came about four years into business. Um, it's funny, up to that point, like my, my life had gone in four-year increments. It was like four years of high school, four years of college, four years of business. I'm like, I sold a business. And at that time, I was like, you know, so I had this, had this meaningful, I mean, not crazy outcome, but like a very meaningful financial outcome. And, uh, and I thought like, well, now I can, this like sounds so stupid when I say it now, but I was like, oh, I can kind of retire. 
<laughs> like I'm just gonna like you know hang out. Like I've worked so hard for the first 25 years of my life. Now I want to. Now I'm just gonna like travel. And my were you surprised at all at uh, like that situation that you were in of being able to sell the business or, or of just being in a place financially where you could kind of do whatever you wanted. Um, or so you thought at that point. I mean, I so I had spent you know, five year of years, whatever, knows the grindstone. Um, I saw the business growing. We were profitable, so we were spitting off cash. So I, it wasn't like I went from like, it wasn't like a venture-backed business yeah. where I went from nothing to all of a sudden having an exit. Um, so I had a little bit of time to kind of get used to the idea that I built something valuable. It's right. like I'm going to, I'm monetizing it with the profit, and at some point I could monetize it with an exit. But yes, it did come up pretty quickly. Um, and it, I would say the the biggest learning for me was, um, that experience of selling the business while satisfying for a little bit um, did not create like the, the life of retirement right. in my mid twenties was not what I wanted. Yeah, of course. And so it was a very, very interesting um, and like pr- quite painful actually like year or so after that, where it was like, I was doing all these things that I wanted to do and I wasn't really enjoying them as much as I thought I was going mm-hmm. to. And I was missing things from the business that I didn't expect to miss. Like I was missing like the tough work that we were doing as a team, like being down in the the trenches together. I really missed the feeling of impact that we had with our students and Mm -hmm. seeing like getting the notes back from parents about colleges they got accepted to and, and, you know, emailing with the kids after the fact. And, and so I think the the biggest lesson for me was, uh, you know, you don't really know what you want uh, in the abstract, like right. you have, it's, it's a revealed preferences kind of thing. Right. And so at that point I learned that, you know, what I like is building. Like I right. like being in there doing things like, and it was actually quite, it was, it's been very impactful to the way I've run, you know, my professional life since then. And that I think when in my twenties running Ivy insiders, I was oftentimes really stressed out. Um, and also like felt guilty about the things I was missing out on. And like, oh, I, sh- I, sh- I should be doing this. I should be traveling. I'm missing out on all these fun things that my friends are doing. Yeah. And like after that period of like doing all those fun things for a while and not being fulfilled by them, I was like, all right, this is kind of what I'm made to do. I want right. I want to build. I want to build a team. I want to do something impactful. And like that's what really gets me going. Right. And so I've been able to do that more unapologetically in the next business. So long story short, I basically went back to the drawing board and said, all right, you know, I like – I didn't, I wouldn't have called Ivy Insiders a mission driven business, but it was. And what I miss about it was that like striving to do something big, to disrupt uh, a status quo, to make something like education more accessible. So I said, all right, how can I take that princess principle of access, do it in either education again, or another very fundamental space. The other one again from my mom's experience was health. Hmm. Um, And I started looking at ideas. And so I, I met my co-founder Gennar. He actually pitched me initially as an investor um, to do to, to what he was calling shop tribe. And he basically wanted to build Groupon for healthy food. Uh, he had grown up on a communal farm in Ojai. He's like, I want to bring the commune to the masses. I was like, well, I, I grew up with the masses. Like yeah. this is, my mom would have been a shopper for this, this, uh, this community. Yeah. And how'd you guys meet? Uh, we got intro through a mutual friend and like we, uh, we, I basically was like attracted to the mission from day one. As attracted his vision, and we were very complementary in terms of our skill sets and just like orientations. Um, and so we started working on it, and like you know, the business model itself changed, the the name of the business changed, 
we had so many, so many like near death experiences, not literally, but for the business yeah. in the first like six months, we brought on our third co-founder, Sasha, our fourth co-founder, um, Kate, uh, who's on the brand and content side. Sasha's our CTO. And, uh, and what were your roles? Uh, we were, we were co-CEO, okay. um, which worked really well for a while. Gunnar's not day-to-day in the business now, but he's still on the board. Uh, Sasha's actually still active day-to-day. So he and I have been at it for now for almost a decade. Um, but we had this, this great, um, dynamic with the, the co-founding team. Um, very interestingly, none of us knew each other before. So we were like developing those relationships as we went, which I know others have said, doesn't always work. Mm-hmm, yeah. There was definitely challenges, but for us, it did. Yeah. But what really worked there was the skill set complementarity, where like each of us was so different, and like the divide and conquer was super powerful for us early on. How did you end up deciding, sort of, you know, who's a co-founder, who's not? Because that also, you know, matters. Uh, you know, obviously, people can bring some sort of complementary skill set, but doesn't always mean that they're a co-founder. Essentially, they could just be like a first hire of a, like a founding team or something like that, right? Like, how do you how do you go about thinking thinking? you know, who's sort of, uh, equity founder of a business versus, you know, more of like an employee or hire. Yeah. It's, I mean, at some level it's, it's judgment, right. And and it's, it can be arbitrary. I think particularly, you know, when you're sitting at the, at the starting line and you don't know someone well, you can't look into the future and see how much value they're going to add. You can't look into the future and see how long they'll be with the business. So there is just risk in making that call. Um, uh, but, but I think it's also just, it's I, like so many of the things at the beginning of the business, you do what feels right. Right. And if you have people that you believe are going to be formative for the business, then, you know, you, you, you do it. And obviously that, you know, there's a question of how many co-founders is right. too many too. So like we had four, you're a co-founder, I, you're a co-founder. You're I know. A co-founder. And, I, and I, I don't know if I've seen too many companies that have more than four, but I will yeah. say every one of our co-founders, um, so two of us are still with the business today. Two or not, but every one of the, the co-founders had a major formative impact on the business. Yeah. What so, what what was Thrive Market early on? Like, what what was it supposed to be? So the original vision was we were going to do group buying events for healthy food. So mm-hmm. basically, get like whole, farmers markets. No, we would basically get wholesale accounts okay. for all these different like healthy, sustainable brands, okay. and then we would say we would run an event like a Groupon, oh, gotcha. uh, where people would sign up, and then we would place the wholesale orders. We'd lock in that price differential. Understood. Um, and then ship it out to, to people. The challenge with that is that there's a time delay yeah. and no one wants to get their groceries like, you know, uh, kind of ad hoc over a two or three week period. And this um, was 2014. This is 2014. This is Gnar and I met in 2013, uh, end of 2013. We started working on it in 2014. We uh, hired an agency to build the original site, dropped hundreds of thousands of dollars of our own money into it, and then like basically found out it was vaporware uh, about two or three weeks before we were supposed to launch. That's what led us to bring Sasha on. Um, you know, we failed to raise funding initially. So like we like probably rejected by 50 to 75 VCs, LA, New York, San Francisco. Like I can still remember one trip. We actually, we were like so low on cash. We drove up to San Francisco mm. and then we were, we were driving back after basically getting like, we had like 15 meetings. It was like 10 no's you know, three maybes and then, you know, one or two no shows what, to the meeting. What was the feedback you were getting? Uh, the feedback was, uh, one, uh, how are you going to compete with whole foods? Which, uh, 
you know, our, our answer was we're not. Like we're no. not trying to go yes. up market. Different business. Yeah. Half of people don't live within driving distance of a Whole Foods and uh, 90-some percent of people can't afford the price premiums. So our whole play was about access and democratization. Right. In some ways, very parallel to what I was doing with Ivy Insiders, where it was like Princeton Review is a thousand bucks. You know, private tutoring is like hundreds of dollars per hour. We're going to charge a few hundred dollars for the whole course and really blow this thing out, make it accessible. With Thrive, it's been a similar kind of organizing principle of first, let's bring the price down to a place that people can afford it. Then with e-commerce, the second thing is let's geographically ship anywhere in the country so people can actually get it. And then with our user experience, we've also organized it all around access where it's Mm -hmm. like, our experience is purpose-built for healthy living. So like you can filter by every single diet and you can filter by the values that, that you care about. We're now using AI to actually load up your cart for you uh, to make that process easier. Um, and and the, the the VCs just didn't get that. Like to them, it was like, well, you know, I live in San Francisco. I go to Whole Foods. Like that's what anyone else should be able to do, right. I think. I think the other issue we had, uh, just like candidly, is most of our VCs don't do their own, didn't do their own grocery shopping. So you're it's talking, all guys. It's all it's all guys. <laughs> They're all like a little older. Like a lot of them didn't have kids in the in right. the home. Maybe they weren't that active with their yeah. with kids. Like our core customer is a parent, right? Mm-hmm. And it's a lot of moms, like my mom, who are there day in and day out, like trying to hold it all together and make good decisions for their for their family. Do it on a budget. Do it with short short time. And so they didn't get that value proposition. What was interesting is we were simultaneously talking to a bunch of health and wellness influencers, like online influencers, uh, about promoting for us. And they did get the value proposition. So we ultimately, out of necessity, ended up going to these folks and asking them to yeah. fund the business. And so we raised our first $8 million in like twenty-five dollars to $50,000 increments. We have hundreds of people on our cap table. Yeah. It was a pain in the ass, but it ended up being the, wor- the, the best thing by far yeah. that ever happened to our business was that we didn't bring on VC money which also, frankly, would have straightjacketed the mission in various ways. Like yeah. there was, that was the second big mm-hmm. pushback. Was like, all right, you guys want to be carbon neutral on shipping? You're going to do zero waste fulfillment? Like you're in a low margin business. Good luck. Like, right. That's just not going to be possible. Um, and I think at the time they didn't appreciate how much the consumers would reward us for doing those right things. Um, now, as soon as we got out and we you know scaled up as fast as we did, a lot of those same VCs came back. So, which, which I, to their, to their, to their credit, you know, they're like, they got it right the second time. I mean, yeah. if yeah. you were and in I their I position, them, right. Yeah. They didn't, yeah. they didn't have the data right. or the, the context to right. understand what we were doing. Right. But once they had the data, they came back and said, all right, let's get behind it. Right. It's another reason though, why the diversity in venture capital or just in business in general is important, even though that's a painfully obvious statement totally. to most people, some people might disagree, but there are actually benefits to having not only gender diversity, but just cultural diversity to have, you know, industry diversity totally. as folks that are backers of these types of startups and companies, because having that just one Silicon Valley perspective is not going to fund a company like Thrive or any other. Well, just think like any non-tech, any innovation to do any innovation, to do anything successfully, to have any outsized income, you have to do things differently. Yeah. yeah. So VC is like their job is to be able to think out of the box. Right. And I think we just happened to be in one of their, those blind spots at the time. Sure. Which, you know, that, like one of my questions is like, what are the blind spots today? today think- well, obviously there's advantages also to like having such a quote unquote, like crazy idea that people don't immediately see like the, how this could be like a huge company. And that could help you when it comes to like, you know, not having a lot of competitors essentially early on when you're like trying to create something new. 
but also, you know, um, a lot of people would be discouraged hearing no constantly, right? And it sounds like you're in a place where you had had a you know pretty successful business, sold it, and you wanted to do something new. But what about the concept and the idea? Were you so, I guess, were you so passionate about? Obviously, you know, we talk about the connection with your you know upbringing and mother and all that. But as far as the business itself, right, like the like the business model, I guess. Did, did you did you have this like strong conviction early on that you were like I know that this these no's are just because that they, they don't know and that you know they'll come around eventually or or did that come after once you realized okay there's something here well I think I think first back to that point around like developing a mindset over time um, and like whether it's natural or not and just like having the courage and the perseverance um, my first company gave me so much experience with failure <laughs> yeah. and like rejection and mistakes that you sort of just sort of develop a thick skin yeah. over time. And I think like one of the ways I described my first business at one point was like, I failed my way to success. Mm. Like I made every mistake in the book, you know, and it was so humbling after being this like straight A student that worked in these like very controlled environments and was able to always get things yeah. right. You get into entrepreneurship and you just get your ass handed to you over and over and over again. And that was the best for me personally. That was like an absolutely necessary, um, humbling, leveling experience that that did train me to no longer take that stuff so seriously. And it's like you know, instead you take it as like, what can I learn from this experience? And then you move forward. It doesn't mean it doesn't still hurt. Mm -hmm. It still hurts, but yeah. you just like you act anyway. You keep going. Um, I also think that um, that my first experience like really showed me that. Uh, even when your back is against the wall, like there's always a way, right? There's always a way you figure it out. Like you can just have a few of those experiences of like the way I've described entrepreneurship in some, some ways, it's like being on a roller coaster where the, it's like at the first time you went on a roller coaster, you didn't know it was safe. You would think you're going to fall out at every turn. Yeah. But like once you go a few times, you're like, oh, okay, I got it. Right. And you, it just, you still get the feeling in your stomach, right. but you know you got your seatbelt on. Right. And I think I, I was just... Like I, there was all these points where we almost failed with Thrive, but I knew we weren't going to. Yeah. Like I, had, I just believed because I'd seen it happen before in my previous right. business. To the point of the mission, though, yes, like I personally had a connection to this one that I believe this should exist. Like I believe that it, it's it's wrong that natural and organic products, healthy products, cost more than unhealthy ones. It's wrong that there's not transparency into supply chains. Uh, and, uh, and it's wrong that people that are in the middle of the country or don't have the income don't get to have access to the same people, things yeah. that people on the coast that do have the income have. But so that was, that was part of it. And then also just like my experience with my mom and having talked to all these people that were parents, you know, in these places and, and, uh, and, and struggling to make it work. Like I knew the opportunity was there. Yeah. So we just had high conviction. Well, the reason I ask is because so many impact businesses are really good for the world. Right. Yeah. But oftentimes we see, they don't, you know, sort of succeed as a business because the business model just isn't there. Right. And you, you talk about in, investors early on saying that this is a low margin business. Yeah. All right. That's what, so did you like you had conviction that you knew the math would work itself out at some point. Yeah. So there, there's two yeah. types of conviction I had. One is that there's demand, mm -hmm. right? And if there's demand, usually there's a way to figure out the economics, mm -hmm. right? And if, if and like we had, we knew there was demand and we knew it was a very white space. Mm -hmm. Like Whole Foods truly was at that point, the only game in town. Um. So did I have utter confidence that our model at that point was exactly the right model? No. 
Like when we started out, membership wasn't even part of it, right? Like early on, it was it was going to be this like group buying event thing. Um, but I also, again, from the last business, I had just seen that you can iterate your your way to success. And like I think the 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 uh, kind of cliche is like MVP. Yeah, and it's true, right? Like you got to get out there with something, you got to get feedback, and you got to be have the intellectual honesty to like learn and really rapidly iterate and how were those early days i mean there was, was a lot of iteration was there product market there was a lot fit? Of, uh yes there was product market fit on the demand side now our contribution margin was negative hmm. and honestly like if you, objectively i think those vcs were right on yeah. like the the economic challenges that our model yeah. would have so there that there was a benefit we had i think of actually being naive because none of us had done an e-commerce, or at least Gunnar and I had not done an e-commerce business before, and we hadn't done food. We had no idea how hard it was going to be. Yeah, we had no idea how tough the supply chain was going to be, how capital intensive it was going to be. Like, if you had told us at that point, you know, you guys are going to have to raise three hundred million dollars and have a million square feet of warehouse space, and you know, it's going to take you eight years to scale to you know where we scaled, we would have been like, what? Yeah. Well, you probably wouldn't have done it. I think that's that's I think that's true, yeah. right? So I think I do think this is why so much innovation happens for right. people that come from the outside. There's huge disadvantages to being an outsider because you you suck at a lot of things that if you were an insider you'd already know how to do. But the major advantage is you don't know how hard it's going to be. Right. Mm-hmm. And with entrepreneurial things, that actually enables you to at least get started. And then once you're in there, you figure shit out. But you also can't predict the future and, and what's going to happen, right? There's so many factors that could change the trajectory of the business, right? Like good or bad. And so having that naivete helps in, in the sense of like, you don't, you can't, you, you don't, you don't think you know where it's going to go. So over time, sometimes sticking to like a reasonable thing for an unreasonable amount of time could like end up working out. And usually does a lot of times where it's like, you know, the people that th- thought they saw ahead sort of talked themselves out of doing yeah. it in the first place. Well, yeah. So the, I would say the naivete was more that we we did think we knew where it was going to go. You know, like mm-hmm. we thought that it was going to get here in this amount of time and this was the model we were going to have. Um, but we were flexible enough to change that. Yeah. Right? Like if you go back and look at the original pitches of any of these these like businesses that have since been very successful, there is so much that changes. Mm-hmm. I think for us, the one thing that didn't change, what's always the North Star, and was like the filter for everything was the mission. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like the mission, in fact, made us more flexible because then we were willing to do whatever it took to get to that mission. Um, but I, I also do think that implicitly part of like what I learned in the first business and what I just know today, just at my core, not because I read it in a book, just I've experienced it so many times, is that if you if you're willing to iterate and be flexible, like there is always a path to success mm-hmm. and you may end up in a very different place or you may end up in the same place in a different way, but you can get there. And you know, that's, that's something that I don't think you can, you can really, you can't really feel it until you experience it. Right. right. Being told that is very different than having seen it happen. Yeah. Yeah. When did the business model shift and then what does it become now? So the, the business model in terms of the core shifted pretty quickly, yeah. right? So like we shifted to, to membership. Yep. We uh, started to study Costco. And so a lot of like the way we described the business when it launched, which I think is quite accurate today still, is Whole Foods meets Costco online. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say we've, we've tried to kind of take the baton from Whole Foods and, and go even further in terms of the quality standards, the sourcing, going directly with the brands, working with brands earlier in their life cycle. 
um, particularly since Whole Foods was bought by Amazon. Yeah. You know, they sort of Amazonified, I call it Amazonified yeah. their yeah. business, um, which has opened up more white space for us to be this leader on, you know, we're the largest uh, seller of, of non-GMO food in the mm-hmm. country. Um, we are, uh, we're, we became a public benefit corporation uh, this past year. We're zero waste on all of our fulfillment centers. We've been carbon neutral since day one. Like we've been, and, and now we're leaning very heavily into regenerative. So going even beyond organic in our supply chains. So, you know, that is, that's really what was like the vision for that was there at the beginning. Yeah. We've gone so much further. And as we've gotten more scale, we've been able to do more. Right. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's been, uh, I would say the first six months was like total uh, iteration of learning in yeah. market, but we hit product market fit on the demand side very quickly. It took uh, five years, I would say, to know we had true line of sight to be profitable. Right. Profitable, and last year was our or the 2023 was our first year of full year profitability. We had a lot of profitable months in 2022, but you know to get this business profitable, you do need to be like a you have to be at very meaningful scale. Yeah, and and early on, you guys were carrying, I assume, other. Brands, are you still doing that, or is it more so you're shifting to more thrive only? We do brands? both. We do yeah. both. So, and we take a very different approach to our own brand. Like, so it's the same as like Kirkland and 365. I think one one difference is a lot of retailers they they actually compete with their brands with their with their own brand. We're using our brand to kind of go further and to and to fill gaps where the market still hasn't gone. Where we can see from our, our 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 members, we hear from them, we hear from our influencers. Like this trend is on. We want a product that has this features. We'll go and we'll make that product. Right. Uh, but then we also ride the coattails of these amazing brands that are doing incredible innovation themselves. Right. So we're never going to be in a world where we're one or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've we've got great margin profile in our own brand business. We can do a lot of innovation there. But there's still incredible stuff that's happening on the branded side. Mm-hmm. And where, where do you see it going? Do you see it going to a model like a Costco where people can go retail and actually shop there? Or do you want it to stay and live online? We want it to stay online. Um, I mean, I never say never. Yeah. Like I can't. But at this at this point, we think the opportunities are in continuing to expand into new categories. You know, we still haven't done fresh food. Uh, we still haven't done a lot outside of, outside of uh, a kind of the non-perishable CPG core. Um, we think there's huge opportunities in the user experience. You know, I talked about using AI to actually yeah. understand and predict what people want. So right now we've got a lot of features that allow them to find the products that align with their values. Mm-hmm. But imagine now where you're actually able to really intelligently recommend or even build a cart right. for people based on that and then get the cadence of that cart uh, done. It's like the equivalent of like walking through the aisles in a way. Well, not direct equivalent but like walking through the aisles and just like stumbling on something where you can't really do that online right it's like that that part i think that piece is missing yeah so there's like we think about both the discovery side which i think what you're getting at like how do we make that 10x better than what you when then if you're doing it yourself in a Mm -hmm. physical grocery store then there's also the recurring side so so much of what you buy with consumer packaged goods i mean these are recurring purchases that you're doing the same thing over and over again all right, how do we learn about you? What things do you like? What's the cadence that you buy them? What things do you buy together? Mm-hmm. And then we can put those in your cart for you. Um, we can engage with you over SMS. And now it's not even like our member services that's doing that. It could be an AI that's doing that with you. Yeah. And it just makes it like, you know, you think about the amount of time that a parent might spend grocery shopping in a given week. Like, what if we can take that down 10x? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You mentioned something earlier on that Thrive is now fully remote. 
what have been the benefits, but also what have been some of the challenges that have come uh, with that? Because I can imagine there's been both. Uh, but curious to hear from you on your thoughts specifically about Thrive. Yeah, it's it 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 is challenging um, because it's just so different, um, and there's so many things that I think happen through osmosis in mm-hmm. a physical environment, um, conversations that will happen, creative sparks that can take place, ad hoc meetings that can just be wound up um, that that don't happen uh, in a remote environment. So the way that we've approached it is first identify what those things are, like what's the magic of being in person and say, all right, what are the, what are there deliberate practices that we can instill kind of aspects of our culture, or we call it our thrive operating system that we can build in to be more deliberate and so get those benefits while being remote. And the answer is for many of them, there is yes. And then there's other things which are just like purely kind of, uh, like kind of pixie dust of human contact and the relationships that you build that really I don't think can be built as yeah. well in person or, or online. And there may be a time, like you think about where VR is going, yeah. where that will will change. But for right now, we, we're still very invested in making sure our people spend time in person. So yeah. our executive team is together once a month, leadership team once a quarter, entire company twice a year. And we program those times to maximize the ability to create connection. Right. Yeah, because you talked about like hiring the best person for that, you know, with the skills, not only in a certain state, but not only U.S., but around the world. Like, yeah, I mean, that seems like a difficult HR challenge, <laughs> you know, totally like you're find, trying to find, you know, a couple of people around the world. Yeah, but it's, it's, one it's a challenge. But like our speed to hire is faster. The number of candidates that we get are, are much larger. Yeah. And the caliber, the overall caliber that we have access to is, mm-hmm. is so much higher. That's like the superpower yeah. of being a remote yeah. first business. I think there's other real benefits too, though. One of them is the ability to integrate with people's own personal lives yeah. and create a healthier relationship to work. Um, like, you know, for us, you know, who those of us that grew up going or like kind of started our careers going to an office, that was very normalized, right? right? It's just like, like you were talking about before with junk food. Yeah. It's like what you did. Right. But when you think about it in the context of like being a human and what being human has meant through like the full span of history, like spending eight to 10 or, you know, a lot of our you know, early businesses, like 12 or 14 hours in an office, it's like that pathological, mm-hmm. right? Like that's not compatible with having a great relationship. It's not compatible with healthy habits for yourself. Right. It's not compatible with having a family. So one of the beautiful things about where we're at now, people, we're still working really hard. Yeah, People are still real. And w- because you're not just like tracking how long someone's at the office, it's all about the output. It's all about the results. What about time differences? I mean, like. Yeah, so you have to deal with that stuff. But th- but what I was getting at was the benefit that people have of being able to integrate work with their life. And like if you're a parent, being able to stick with it as right. opposed to having to, yeah. to, 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 you know, like a lot of parents that just have to choose between their career or parent, being parenting, um, it's, it's huge. Yeah. Um, and on like, you know, time zones, like we, there are certain roles that we will, you know, we will not hire on the East Coast right. because they've got to be, uh, uh, it's, it's more, it's, more beneficial to be right. on the same time zone. There's also people though that make it work, right? Where it's like they just keep Pacific hours despite the fact that they're on the sure. East Coast. Sure. And for some of our developers, you know, we've got developers that are all over the world yep. and a lot of their work is asynchronous, so it works yeah. fine. Looking into the future, do you think that there will ever be a time when there's like this equilibrium of, you know, I feel like over time 
whether it's the media or certain people will will take like a certain food and just brand it as like bad, right? Like eggs are bad, milk is bad or whatever. And then like over time, people will realize like, well, maybe it's not that bad. Like it's obviously you could, there's different ways of seeing it, but, um, and then sometimes it gets politicized and all that kind of stuff. But do you think that the, there will ever be like an equilibrium where everyone sort of agrees that there is, these are like the healthy organic foods and that's kind of what like we're exclusively, that's like our only option essentially. And that the price and, you know, the supply and demand, all that kind of stuff just kind of equal out and even out. And that's where we're at as a society. Uh, no, no, I don't think that'll be the case. But yeah. I think that the, I think where the debate is happening, it's always on the edges. Right. Yeah. And that's the case for any field that's moving quickly. Like at the bleeding edge, there's going to be a bunch of controversy about, you know, What's the most effective? What, what's the what's the best diet? What's the most effective macro breakdown? What are the important micronutrients? Whatever, but you know, all, the ninety percent of the core we do know, right? Yeah. Which is like eat real food, don't eat too much of it. Um, things that are processed. The more processed, the more refined, the worse generally. Yeah. Um, and and keep things pretty simple. And, uh, and a lot of the diets end up just being variations or like different paths to getting to some version of that. And I think, you know, we believe, and I think the science bears out and and history bears out. If you look at different human cultures, that there's a lot of different diets that can be healthy. So some of this also like part of when we think about health, it's not just health for the person, it's health for communities and health for the planet. And different people have different values. So they may be more like, they may be really into regenerative. They may really care about animal welfare. Um, we call it voting with your dollars mm-hmm. where, you know, you're, you're shopping your healthy lifestyle and you're shopping your values. So you're showing up as a consumer the way that you want to. Um, and all our shopping experience, all the filters and all the values allow you to do that. So I think that there's, I think there will continue to always be a debate at the, at the edge. We can provide the products that people you know, what, that are in the different tribes, we call them you know, yeah. health tribes or whatever. But we also try to bring people back to that core and also to not allow the products on that we know are not healthy. Mm-hmm. Because the 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 part I find more concerning than that debate about what is good is the like more cynical um, uh, approach that I think historically has been unfortunately pretty rife in, yeah. in big CPG, which is you know, we're going to take something that like we know is bad yeah. and we're going to call it good. Right. And well, I think better for you. Yeah. Better for you. Right. It's like be- better compared to what it's yeah. like, the, it's like the, you know, like shit or shittier, which one? Yeah. Oh, it's sorry. like the low tar cigarette. Right. right? right. So yeah. I think like, we've really tried to cut through that noise and like, we just don't let that kind of stuff on the site. Yeah. And that is something where like we label the things so that you can find the things that are right for you. But we also have this filter where we give up revenue on products that we could sell a lot of, that we have a lot of empty search results on because we don't believe that they, you know, are, are, are good products. So like, you know, you look at, and there's more something I'm personally curious about, but I know we've talked about Pat is, you know, you go to Europe and there's all these like banned ingredients that literally even these CPG, like prepackaged goods can't have. You know, even even Canada, for example, like there's and I'm sure other places around the world. And then you come to the U.S. and all of those ingredients are in everything that's packaged. How do you guys work around that and how do you see that changing over time? Will there be like this food revolution in the United States where people are just like, okay, we're sick of this shit, like literally and figuratively. um, And we've got to ban some of these ingredients. I think it's happening. I don't have as much confidence in the government to solve any of these types of problems sure or like any problems in yeah, general to yeah. be honest and so our our approach is let's not wait for the ban to happen right 
let's empower people because right. people are smart and people yeah. like every parent wants the best food for their kids. Right. Every person wants the best, like if they have the information, sure. they will make better decisions. Um, so, but it's our, unfortunate that we even have to make that decision, right? Like, why can't it just be, I think like, it, that is what it, like we get that and we know it's good. So I have a little bit different perspective on that because I think, you know, if you can cherry pick and like, only ban the really bad stuff. Mm-hmm. Great. But Europe also bans a lot of things yeah. and like regulates a lot of things and controls a lot of things that probably aren't good yeah. right. for the economy and aren't, aren't good for people. Mm-hmm. So I do think the robustness of the American economy depends on being a little more freewheeling, letting innovation happen. And that means there is going to be some harm. Um, so I agree that most of the product, like, you know, in the, in the rearview mirror, the regulatory scheme of, of Europe on food specifically. Or even like skincare better. or beauty yes, products. like yeah. those things are, it is better. Yeah. They have more consumer protections. Yeah. But consumer protections can also swing too far right. and actually limit consumer choice and sure. limit innovation. And part of our innovation, in my mind, I would rather have a have a, an economy that's less regulated, but I would rather have more transparency sure. where like a company like ours can get out there and and tell the story of the brands that are doing it right provide the labeling uh, and and make it easy for you to vote with your dollars. So mm-hmm. I, I have a lot more confidence in uh, the speed, agility, and effectiveness right. bottoms-up consumer movements than I do with a top-down government-driven movement. So you know, would I be devastated if the government decided to ban some of the really terrible stuff that we ban on Thrive? No, I'd love to have like Thrive standards right. ba- you know, exercised by the FDA. But I don't want a more regulated world in general. Yeah. I want more power to consumers and more companies that are recognizing that consumers are conscious, that consumers don't just care about price and convenience. They also care about values. Right. And I think that's... Well, that'll drive down prices eventually. Totally. And that's if there's one thing at like a meta level that we can do, like we can... And at Thrive, we want to make healthy and sustainable living accessible, but we also want to show that a business that does the right thing uh, is rewarded by consumers for right. it. Like the reason our renewal rates are high is because we act with integrity, right? The, that the fact that we're zero waste, the fact that we're carbon neutral, those aren't costs to our business. Those are actually major assets to our brand. Mm-hmm. They're reasons why people tell their friends about us. They're reasons why we've been able to to be as successful as we have. Are you or Thrive actively investing or working with other brands that are kind of on the same page as you that have the same mission? To whether it's to scale their operations by bringing them to your, you know, website, or I mean, is that something that you guys actively do? Yeah, I mean, we so with our with our platform, like I said earlier, we want to get to a brand as early in the life cycle as possible. Yeah, like if a brand is doing something innovative, if they're improving the health of a product, if they're opening up a new sustainable supply chain, if they're improving communities, if they're doing innovative stuff on animal welfare, if they're pushing like all of the things that we care about, we want to find those brands early. And we want to give them scale so that they can grow faster, so they can be more successful. Um, So that we view that as like our role in the ecosystem is to be that platform that will make the early bet with them and give them exposure to to, to the right consumers early. We also have have tried to open source a lot of what we do in our business from a particularly from a sustainability standpoint, but from a mission standpoint overall to those businesses so they can learn from us. So like we went plastic neutral this year. We're in a really, really cool uh, platform called Repurpose. And like we're now running a consortium with our brands to get more of them to use Repurpose to also go plastic right. neutral. When we went zero waste in our fulfillment centers, you know, we did 20 plus CapEx projects to make that happen. We like literally 
showed the whole thing up and said, yeah. this is how you can do it. And look, it can actually be done in a way that has 18 month payback and is good for your business. So yes, we do think there's an opportunity and we have tried to play on it uh, to, uh, to lead other brands on platform towards our way of doing business. And like I said, we want to be a proof point that you can do business that is good for the world and also you know, great for the bottom line. I'm curious, what is your role today and where do you see your role going and do you see yourself at Thrive for the rest of your life? I mean, this is, I, I would say all the time, this is my life's work, right? Like if, if, if we are, we have 1.5 million members today, we're doing hundreds of millions of sales. It's you know, way orders of magnitude more scale than I had in my first business um, and something I'm already really proud of. But at the end of the day, we're still very, very early. Um, you know, when you look at our scale compared to some of the businesses that I think have a more traditional model that are doing, you know, they're doing billions of dollars of sales. You know, there's 300 million uh, U.S. consumers out there. Uh, we have less than 1% of even U.S. households. So, you know, our, our brand awareness is still very low. Um, and, you know, this is a business that you can't, we were talking about this before we started the, started the show, but like it, because we're moving physical goods, like we can't scale exponentially. Right. Uh, so we've had to build the foundation. What's beautiful about where we're at now is that foundation is built. We've got enough scale. We understand the core and the flywheel is turning in a way that, you know, we think the next 10 years are going to be literally exponentially yeah. more exciting. And I think more and more we're last. learning that the businesses that are, I don't want to call it slow, but are setting that foundation and there's a real business component there where there is a way to make money yeah. are the ones that will and are surviving versus those that, you know, spent millions of dollars on customer acquisition on social media yeah. and then had nothing to show for it when those customers didn't come back. Yeah. I mean, churn, right. churn kills businesses. Yeah. And I think for us, like through our entire history, our top source of new members has always been referral from existing members. Mm -hmm. Our renewal rates have always been market leading. And like we have, we have measured ourselves by the value that we create to our members. And that's, that's like business one-on-one. Yep. Right. But I think when you're with, when you have venture capital and you're yeah. kind of sometimes unleashed from or untethered from having to be profitable or having to kind of serve the, serve the customer, there's a lot of I think weird disincentives that happen. Yeah, I was about to say the time horizons are like different, right? Like that okay. certain businesses take longer than others, and then okay. the VC model sometimes is not conducive to like. That. And this is where we were really lucky to have the influencers early on. We also, you know, in our Series B, we raised from a group called Invis. Um, they don't do any press, so not a lot of people have heard about yeah. them. But they're a a, a, a scaled private equity shop that has a single LP. So they're not having to go back and fundraise every yeah. few years. And just they take a very different orientation and a very different timescale. So yeah. like that has allowed us since 2016, we haven't had to be going out every two years to raise more right. capital, right. which enabled us to build the business the right way. Um, and so, yeah, we've, we've been very fortunate to have the right partners at the table. I think to have the mission keeping us long-term and then also, like I said, to be both mission driven, but also really rigorous and intellectually honest about like, we still have to be a profitable business. And, you know, we're now at a place where that, that flywheel is turning. So to your question about, can I see myself doing this forever? You know, again, I don't, I, I know enough to not like look out too far right, in right, the future, right. but yes, we've got work to do for decades and, you know, we can build a, we believe we can build a multi tens of billions of dollar business that at that kind of scale would actually have impact, impact yeah. on the health and wellness in the country awesome. Love that. well nick this has been an absolute pleasure i feel like i have so many other questions brewing in my head but maybe we can do a part two at some time in the in the future but we appreciate you coming by and 
sharing your story and, and all you're working on now and uh, excited to see where things go from here. Thanks so much. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Nick. Thank you.